Are we in the wrong room? Oh, I, think we, I think we must be. There are people here. It's a... <laughs> I've seen so many people. Yeah. Shocking. Okay. How lovely. Well, no, no, stay. Pretend, stay. pretend the lights are in our eyes. Lock the doors. Kia ora tato. Good afternoon and welcome to this Word Christchurch session with Scottish poet Robin Robertson. Um, thank you for your warm welcome. Greatly appreciated by both of us. Um, Robin's here um, as a guest, as one of a contingent of Scottish writers here at this festival, and that's partially as an exchange with the Edinburgh International Writing Festival, and there are a number of sponsors, Creative Scotland, Bloody Scotland, the British Council and Creative New Zealand who have contributed to that wonderful exchange, and I'd love to see more of it. So um, we do this session in their honour, as well as your honour, for thanking you for coming to listen to us. Um, Robin was born in the, in Scone, I think, in the northeast of Scone. Scone, yeah. Scone. And I'm going to continue to shame myself. And so I, you will feel I'll just keep correcting you. All okay. of the humiliation will come from here, uh -huh. and Robin will, yeah. Um, he's the author of five volumes of poems, a number of anthologies that he's edited, including Humiliation, the wonderful anthology that was Mortification. Mortification. I've done it again. Okay. <laughs> Three strikes and the hook comes out. I'll just handle it from here. Yeah. Okay? Good. 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 Thanks, Fergus. <laughs> also, um, recently he's done more work as a translator, and then this year a new book called The Long Take, a book which I'm not quite sure what to describe it as. It's a long poem. Um, it, it's a kind of novel, and we can say that this has been long listed for the Man Booker Prize, so I'm sure that makes you very happy to think of it as, an, as a novel. Yes, it is a novel now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also, in, in ways that I, I hope we'll explore later, a, like a film, a film without pictures, but it's structured and edited like a film. Um, Robin also has uh, another life as an editor and publisher, um, as a young editor, he was part of the renaissance of Scottish literature in the 1980s. Young writers, wonderful writers like Irvine Welsh and A.L. Kennedy and Alan Warner and Duncan MacLean, but also overnew, overdue recognition for Alistair Gray and James Kelman and so on. Um, and at Jonathan Cape, um, Robbins continued to be the editor of wonderful writers like Anne Enright and Michael Ondaatje, um, Alistair MacLeod, um, John Burnside, a particular favourite mm. writer of mine. So I thought um, we might approach the poetry by way of the publishing. And I'd like to ask you about that first. And of course, the double life is a Scottish theme. Mm. Um, and so Robin Robertson, poet, and Robin Robertson, editor, which one's Jekyll and which one's Hyde? Um. That's a trick question, isn't it? It is, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I'm not going to answer it directly. <laughs> um, but what you're probably really getting at is um, what tensions are there between the two lives and how, mm -hmm. do, how did I manage to lead two simultaneously? I don't know. And but the, um, yeah, uh, I loved working with books. I still love working with books. but. That prevents you from writing because you've got other writers' voices in your head. So it's very difficult to decompress and, and, and clear your head and, and go and write. So I work on a kind of pressure cooker system. Uh, 
so that I have a, a three or four week sabbatical every year. And I hope that all, all this is stored up, all the images and phrases and ideas, and that when I come to my retreat, I can, you know, twist the top and there'll be a satisfying hiss of released tension and I'll be able to write. And it usually works, works that way. That's, that's mm -hmm. fantastic. And Bill Manhire is another writer I know who's the same. Mm -hmm. He could never teach and write at the same time. The writing was between term times. Mm -hmm. Whereas other publisher writers seem to be able to do both without any pressure. Maybe it's a sign of the kind of work they're doing. Mm. Um, an observation I made rereading your early poems and the selected poems, having you know, not gone back to those volumes recently, was how in the first books, there's not a lot of the modern world, not a lot of working life, but there's a lot of very intimate scenes, you on the beach, listening to the sort of suck of the waves <coughs> over the stones, sort of mm. imagining being sucked out, which was half an attractive feeling, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, family scenes, and also a lot of Scottish folklore and mythology. And um, so in a way, I'm saying that, that the poet is the hide where you, you know, confront the darker and more inner room of yourself. I'm sure you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to go looking, you know, yeah, too, yeah. too hard at that. But yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but the, the interest in Scottish folklore and myth has continued, at least, and, mm. um, through, the, through the years. But those, those myths and folk tales, how many of them are real and how many do you make up? Well, I've been making up a lot recently because um, it just was more fun. Um, and I was brought up in the oral tradition of, of um, Scottish ballads and folk music and poetry, uh, which is a very rich uh, source of material. Um, couldn't help but be influenced by that. But um, recently, in the past um, six or seven years, I've been writing invented Scots narratives, mm -hmm. which are far more grisly and unpleasant um, than anything that existed um, in legend. What started that? Uh, I don't know, just general bad, badness <laughs> in me. Um, <laughs> and I suppose I kind of narr interested in narrative yeah. because you were talking about translations. Well. And so I've translated um, from Greek, um, and Medea, and the Bacchae. Um, and a lot of what I've translated have, have been stories, um, and from Ovid as well, um, from the Metamorphoses. So I didn't realize it, but, but narrative was always, a, there was a tug there yeah. that, that, so obviously it's become a novel, you see. Mm -hmm. That's how it's ended up. Okay, so, so um, we're, we're fast forwarding here. Uh -huh. um, and I want you to imagine a sort of film noir montage where you pass through gateways and arches and bridges and newspapers and the years pass and we come to the long take. Um, when in that montage did the long take start? Can you identify the first spark? Um, well, I, I just published... Um, few years back, my selected poems, Sailing the Forest. And God, that's a kind of grave marker, almost, isn't it? Um, am I going to carry on just producing poems? Should I not try something different? Uh, I, I wanted to 
give myself a challenge. Um, and I had written um, what I felt was a long narrative sequence in my first book. In fact, it's very short. But I enjoyed doing that um, because it allowed me uh, freedoms to, to approach text in a more layered way. So, um, and I also wanted to re-examine some, I'd never written about the cities. As you say, it was mostly beaches and you know, uh, windswept Scottish islands. But I lived in a, I've lived in a city most of my life and that seemed like an odd omission. So um, I wanted to re-examine my own anxieties moving from Scotland, from Aberdeen, the northeast coast, to come down to work in London. And I grew up with B-movies on television. I didn't know they were film noir. That was their yeah. name, um, which isn't actually a genre. It's just a kind of mood or yeah. style. Yeah. Um, but when I came to London, I completely understood what that attraction had been, because those films carry with them the atmosphere of dread and paranoia uh, when you, an alienation uh, of people coming to a city for the first time, particularly from a, well yeah. out of town, from another country, in my case. Yeah. Denise Minor was interesting in her session this morning when she said her editors would sometime, all in her new book, The Long Drop, would query the Americanisms of mm -hmm. the language. And she said, but that's because the crime reporters, the police and the criminals all modeled themselves on American film noir. <laughs> they all wanted to be, you know, short, violent men wanted to be Bogart or Cagney. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's true. Yeah. But, but why America? Um, why not London, if that was your course? Uh, London is too familiar to me. I also mm -hmm. wanted to set it back a little bit in history. Um, and the most interesting time, I think, is post-war, particularly for America. It's like a pivotal decade. This happens to be also the period of the film noir cycle, which roughly begins in the early 40s and ends in the late 50s. Um, but the post-war years are particularly powerful. And America was also very powerful at that time, very successful. It had... Uh, weathered the depression years and it had been forced into the war by Pearl Harbor, but it had generated enormous amounts of, of money and armaments and it, the whole country was a machine, a war machine. And then they say they won the war, of course, and they came, soldiers came back shattered from Europe and there was no ticker tape parade for them. America had moved on. Um, but America, which built its, all its moral strength on ideas of tolerance and, um, and welcome to immigrants, you know, the huddled masses, mm. suddenly became a place of paranoia after the war because their insularity had been breached and they felt that the outsiders were coming in. So this paranoia uh, manifested itself in uh, largely the fear of communism and infiltration by communism. Um, so you had Senator McCarthy, you had the HUAC committee where um, film 
directors and film stars mm -hmm. were pilloried and could never work again yeah. because they perhaps had once been members of the Communist Party. And then there's a direct narrative line which leads then to Korea, to Vietnam, to um, Afghanistan, to Iraq, and to Trump, where, where you, have, uh, you have this man who's kind of circling the wagons and shooting the Indians, mm -hmm. just, just like the way it started. You know? yeah. yeah. It's fascinating to hear you put it in that wonderful political frame, because when I think movies and film noir and jazz. I mean, the book is also saturated with the wonderful jazz musicians, and we're not going to talk all about jazz, but we could. Um, and that's an immensely attractive America, and it's sold to us as nostalgic style, and we all now want to live in that mm -hmm. world of the 1940s and 1950s. And yet you're very quick um, to show the blood on the barroom floor and to show the violence and to puncture that illusion, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's all, film noir itself is a kind of cliche and illusion. Uh, when, when you say film noir to people, they think, oh, Bogart and Bacall and uh, men in fedora smoking under street lamps. But there is some of that. But the best noir is about, is very, very dark. It's, mm -hmm. it, one of the characters says it's uh, German expressionism meets the American dream. Mm -hmm. And it's a very ugly clash. Yeah. And the reason it's interesting is it wasn't made by Americans. Film noir films, these films were made by Europeans, mostly German Jews escaping mm. uh, from Nazi Germany. And they came over with all those terrors uh, in, in their sensibility, and they imposed their sensibility on Hollywood. And they, that's why all the... Yeah. The sharp angles, the chiaroscuro, the, yeah. this, this motifs of imprisonment and general sense of dread. That's mm -hmm. because... Which, which is beautiful and comforting if you only bathe in it, not if you actually have, look at have the stories and the morals. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about the way the book starts? And perhaps this is a good way to move into a first reading. Mm -hmm. Because your character, Walker, is a kind of a blank. He's an everyman who comes yeah. down from Nova Scotia as a, a damaged ex-serviceman. And what, what were you trying to do with Walker? Walker, um, Walker as you say, um, brought up in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, rural community, Catholic community, um, a place not unlike, uh, physically not unlike parts of New Zealand um, or Scotland. Um, he found that a little bit uh, imprisoning, um, but he he's sent off to war. He fights in the D-Day landings and through Europe. He witnesses and commits terrible crimes, which we don't really know until the end. Um, he comes back with PTSD. He, do, he, do, he can't return to the island because he feels so sullied and so broken by his experiences mm. that uh, it would be a disfigurement of this kind of rural idyll. Um, so he, he does what many ex-servicemen did, which was to try and lose themselves in the big cities, the, the lure of, of, of New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, the brittle um, fascination of that, which he soon discovers is, 
an illusion. Um, but he's looking for anonymity, looking for repair, and perhaps a, a sense of community, which is, he had a, com a, a camaraderie yeah. in the war, and that's all gone. So he's piecing himself together. So he's a, he is a cipher, but he's, yeah. he's trying to move in the right direction. Um, and so he goes first to the closest, where, where they actually were sent, was New York, yeah. mostly. So I'll read the opening, and, <clears throat> and you'll see I'm, uh, the, the opening section, he's entering Manhattan, and then there'll be sections, uh, very short sections of him, uh, third-person narrative, um, intercut with memories of, of um, Cape Breton. <clears throat> And there it was, the swell and glitter of it like a standing wave, the fabled smoking ruin, the new towers rising through the blue, the ranked array of ivory and gold, the glint, the glamour of buried light as the world turned round it very slowly, this autumn morning, all amazed. And it stayed there, watching, as they made toward it, the truck driver and the young man, under pylons, wires, utility poles, past warehouses, container parks, deserted lots, between the long, oily marshes, landfill sites and swamps, before slipping down under the Hudson and coming up on the other side to find a black wetness of streets, trashed and empty, and the city gone. This is, I'll raise my hand when it's an island memory. It was in me burning like a coal seam fire, the road. Back there in Broad Cove on the islands, it was just working the mines or the boats, taking on the habits of the old ones, the long stare out to sea, becoming like a thorn tree, twisted hard to the shape of the wind, its grain following the grain of the weather, cloth caps and tweed ruddy, raw-boned faces, wet eyes, silences that lasted weeks, the women wringing red hands or dishcloths or the necks of chickens just to make more silence. He walks, that is his name and nature, rows of buildings, all alike, doors and windows, people going in, looking out, Inside, halls and stairs, halls and stairs, and more doors opening and closing, street after street of buildings, all the same, people all the same. The clutter and color, everything moving on the street and across it, straight lines and diagonals, drugstores, grocery stores, snack joints, diners, missions, bars, blocks, corners, intersections, a dropped crate, or a child's shout, or car backfiring, and he's in France again. That taste in his mouth. Coins, cordite, blood. The road invisible under heavy snow, a clean and softened land, fluent and dazzling down to the ocean's slate. The only color is the lichen clinging, clinging to twigs, bright as pollen. And back of the house, the berries of the rowan tree, one arm across the door, 
Night, the city's gone. In its place, this gray stone maze, this locked geometry of shadows, blind and black, and angles hurt into the sky, symmetries breaking and snapping back into line. The green Zs of fire escapes, wires crisscrossing what's left of the light to a tight mesh. The buildings come around the dead end, then spring open to the new future. Repetition, backtracking, error, loss. Father just stood at the door. The war was one thing, but this is another. You're the first of us to leave in 170 years. Cold as candlemass, a skin of ice on the water glass by the bed is the only thing that doesn't shake under the rails of the Third Avenue L overhead. Through the gray net curtain above the tenements outside, the sky jitters awake like a loose connection. Lightning glows behind the walls of cloud. Somewhere up north of here is the Chrysler and the Empire State. Somewhere south, there's liberty. Ice webbed the wooden pilings, the ice spill opaque and raised and slippery smooth like dried glue. Back home, the sea would be chipped granite, shale, anthracite blue, turns sipping the waves, cheeping low over a run of mackerel before the whelming breach of a humpback or a pilot whale. He would watch the river all day for that moment when the tide reaches slack and the bottles afloat on the surface are completely still. The slap of waves against the rocky shingle like the distant crackle and crump of small arms or mortars or the flap of wet tarpaulin. A block away in the pearl dusk, some whore worked over for a dollar bill, dancing now face down in the Hudson. Then the slow retreat of winter, spring's advent and reprieve. You'd see drift ice from the Arctic, which sometimes passed so near, you could hear the songs of the seals voyaging there on those gray shelves of ice. Thank you. I would love to ask you to just go on, but that would be shirking my duty. It's a long... Yeah. Um, but it reads so beautifully. And um, I don't know how much you needed the raised hand to signal the ship back into um, Nova Scotia, Cape Breton. But I think that opening beautifully illustrates the way Walker finding his way into New York and remembering what he's left and what's propelled him. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the imagery, the sounds flow back and forth quite nicely, don't they? That was the idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm um, very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, just a nerdy question. Um, um, was Alistair MacLeod behind your choice of um, Cape Breton and the fact that you chose a Canadian rather than a Scottish ex-soldier? Um, well, he was, he was, I was his TA and um, he was my teacher. Uh, when I was in Canada do, doing a postgraduate degree, and I subsequently became his editor in, in Britain. That's a treat. 
Yeah, it was a treat. Uh, he's a fabulous writer. Um, I wanted I wanted Walker to come from a country, the northern neighbour of the States, just like Scotland is the northern neighbour of England. I wanted him to come from a, a rural community, uh, just as part the part of Aberdeen that I was from was basically rural. Um, so there's a kind of autobiographical yeah. uh, element. So I wanted to, uh, to to involve myself in that respect because this was partly my journey as well. Um, I, I set it in Nova Scotia, not because of Alistair MacLeod, but, but um, because of its nature and terrain, um, but that he, he helped and I went there and found his grave and ended up, I was in a and b and they asked me what I was doing here and I explained, I used to be taught by him, and he said, oh, he's, he's my uncle. You know, <laughs> so it was a very small community, yeah. and, um, but it was great to do that research. But also um, reading Alistair MacLeod, he, he felt to me as culturally Scottish as any Scottish writer I'd ever read. Yes, yeah, in fact he inscribed his first book to me and, and uh, to my fellows, he was going to write Scott, um, but he actually meant Canadian. Um, <laughs> uh, he, yeah, he was an incredible man. Um, yeah. so. <clears throat> and Walker, Walker in that scene seems quite positive, his openness to New York. But New York quite quickly turns into a vision of hell, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. can, you, can you describe how, how that happened? I think it's because Walker couldn't find a, any sense of any foothold, any community. He 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 starts working in the docks, and that just remind the fish just remind him of the fish back in Nova Scotia. Um, it's very cold. The New York winter is bitter. Um, he leaves after uh, about a, a year, I think, um, and does again what many servicemen did. They they moved on to another city, and in this case. It was Los Angeles, which where the bulk of the, the, the I was going to say novel, the narrative poem uh, is is set largely in Los Angeles. He goes there, briefly up to San Francisco, and then back to Los Angeles. Thinking of it as a novel, and actually thinking of you as a novice novelist, as a first-time novelist, one of the things I can see in the construction of the book is the way you're solving some of those difficult problems that novice novelists have to confront. And I wonder how much the formats take. I mean, did you consider writing it as a seamless novel in which everything would have had to somehow come through Walker's consciousness in a relatable way? No. Um, <clears throat> I didn't conceive it at all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I just started writing it. and. I had no idea that it was going to turn out to be, firstly, as long as it is, and secondly, misconstrued as a novel. Um, <laughs> but I'll take that, you know, I'll take that. Um, it, it, I just let him go, you know, I let him go. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I did a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of editing. I watched four or 500 films, mm -hmm. part, partly just to soak up the period, the, the idiom of the language, um, the visual style, the music, but also to establish a geography because in Los Angeles, um, 
many of the, the, the film noir uh, classics were made, were shot outdoors and in a place called Bunker Hill, which is downtown Los Angeles. Um, it was a, a hill of about 200 feet uh, with um, residential buildings, rather down at heel, a lot of SROs, um, single room occupancy, hotels, people on their own, people who are in trouble. Um, the, the local, uh, or the, the council decided it wasn't making enough money. It was a bit messy, so they evicted everyone. They pulled all the build Queen Anne buildings, the most beautiful buildings, all destroyed, and they leveled the hill by 200 feet, gone, to build skyscrapers and banks and, and, and parking lots. And the, those, some of those parking lots are still there uh, 80 years later. Do, do you think that if they hadn't done that, that Walker would have found a haven? Because <laughs> it did seem he had a job in a newspaper, he had friends, mm. he had his single room. Yes. Um, it was almost like he was finding a, a replacement for Cape Breton, somewhere he could be. Well, he is looking for a community, and he, he finds it. I mean, Bunker Hill, um, the reason I was talking about that, I forgot, was um, in order to, to... There are no maps, really, of, of this area, um, I had to create a map by watching all the films, by saying, ah, that street goes down there and that bar is on the corner, so I know what happens around there. So I drew this map, which, I, which is in the book now, but I gave it to, went to a cartographer to do it properly, but this is the lost geography of, of Los Angeles. But Walker finds, I'm not going to give too much away, but he does find a kind of family, a kind of community, rather odd one, in, um, amongst the damaged and derelict in, on Skid Row, which is the old, oldest surviving community in Los Angeles. It, it was there, it, yes, it was there in the 30s, and it's still there, and it's terrifying. But that's about half of the people on Skid Row are service, ex-servicemen still have just been abandoned you know by yeah. their communities not given any kind of medical or um, or mental help um, and they're just holding together their their damage yeah in fact that that takes us nicely to one of my favorite minor characters in your book Billy Idaho mm -hmm. um, who's a black ex-serviceman an autodidact with a library that he has on the streets with him or carries from room to room and it struck me partially that, that that solved a technical problem for you because you could have Billy Idaho performing his knowledge of the city and performing his theories of urban change mm -hmm. and class struggle in a way that if you put it into a naturalist novel, people yeah. would say, oh, that, you know, that's just the writer putting the ideas into the book. Yes. Yes, you spoilt it all now. Oh. Um, yeah, that, that was what he was for, yes. Uh. But, but he, he is a fantastic character. I mean, how did you come by him? Uh, I just made him up. Um, <laughs> he's made up his own name. He, he may be called Billy, but he's certainly not called Idaho, uh, which is the... I just wanted to find the whitest state in, in the Union. Yeah, um, yeah he, he describes it as the home of the potato... Uh, cold and white, mm -hmm. and, and he's a black guy and he's a wiry kind of survivor, but very, you know, he reads a lot, as you say. And he's, he's passionate about 
the urban crimes that are being committed. I mean, I mean the planning of the city, um, driving freeways through through residential areas, cutting off the whole community, cutting its, <laughs> all its links. You know, it's it's a disaster, Los Angeles. It really is um, sprawling mess of a place. Um, so yes, he's a, he he gets me out of a lot of binds. He just tells it tells my, that kind of dull story. But he's also a way of getting in the broader tragedy of the yes. and, and also Velma, his female friend that he's trying so hard to look after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Can, can I ask just briefly about about the women who are since it's a very um, I suppose because it's Walker's story and he lives in a male world largely and from the murdered prostitute in those opening scenes through to Velma and the other women and then there's Annie the girlfriend that he doesn't deserve to go back to mm-hmm. um, can, can you imagine the story told from one of their point of view what would their America be like well I think it would be quite similar but um, I'm aware that the, the, the women are, are perhaps not as well drawn as they might be, um, but the, I'm using a kind of noir perspective, mm. and also my own perspective as 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 a as a man traveling. Um, the yeah, I don't really know how to account for the women are uh, are are strong, um, mm. and and but as damaged as the men. The men provide the violence, as usual. Yeah. Um, so that's rather stereotypical. Oh, I think the women are extremely well drawn, but, but they come up as cue cards, as as um, sort of images, which show you what's really going on and what the implications of the behaviour are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a scene where, or there are several scenes where Walker encounters women who who beckon him. And he refuses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a sign of something that's been lost by that male violence, both the large male violence of the war and the small vi- male violence of their behaviour. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Wasn't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Completely agree with you. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. So um, you make Walker a newspaper man. Um, did you enjoy researching the working life? Uh, I didn't do an awful lot of research on, on that. Um, I just wanted him to uh, to be involved in in writing and social commentary. It gives him a chance to to tell his editor he wants to um, uh, write about uh, homelessness on the streets and gets him up to San Francisco and it gives him something to do, you know, rather than just sit around drinking and. Um, Yes. Were, were newspapers writing those stories then? Was there that kind of I don't know. reflection? I don't know. I mean, I, I was aware during the course of the book that, that I, I shouldn't do too much research because it was going to st- start to stultify the, the writing. I, I did a lot of stuff on, on the cities and the geography and the, the urban planning. Um, I got the timetables of the of the trains. I, everything yeah. is real. Everything is accurate. Yeah. I mean, painstakingly accurate. I don't know why. Nobody knows but me. <laughs> but uh, 
uh, I, I, I stopped. I thought, well, hang on a second. I mean, this is ridiculous. So let's just keep it a bit, bit fluid. So, so, so you send Walker to San Francisco mm -hmm. on a job, but, but there's more to it than that, isn't there? Um, yes, well, San Francisco, being the beautiful city it is, surrounded by water, uh, he sort of comes to life again a little bit. Um, and there's a lot of memory, happier memories of, of Nova Scotia. Um, he's not there for very long because there's a kind of pool. He's, he has the sense of, of a community beginning in Los Angeles. He comes back and it, he sees how even in that two-year period, mm -hmm. the city has changed. That you know, things there's a new freeway being driven right through yeah. downtown. Uh, they've knocked down all these streets, and and the demolition of downtown Los Angeles has begun, and the pace of the book begins to quicken, and he sees the community that he has started to feel involved in being destroyed in front of him. And he starts, the flashbacks to the war start coming fast and furious. And the two are linked in his head. And it's just, he breaks, everything's breaking down and, again. And that lovely separation, or the comforting to the reader separation of the time scheme in the first part of the book, starts to become much more brittle mm -hmm. and chancy. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you given another reading that sort of indicates that, yeah. that change? and that? Um, yeah, I'll read it from the Los Angeles um, section. Um, this is uh, not quite where things go really badly wrong, but there's a lot of things going badly wrong generally. Um, okay. So this is him walking uh, through uh, through Skid Row first. Uh, he's looking for Billy, always looking for Billy. You can never find him. <clears throat> Letting the night loosen around him, he wandered slow down Sixth, past Coles, past the Greyhound station, till he reached the east side, turning off down Maple, Winston, Pedro, Crocker. In each dark corner of the whites of their eyes, every hand stretched out, the nickels and dimes he spilled into their open palms were soundless, thin as water in this heat, evaporating as he walked away. Men sitting round bottles, shifting in their rags, eyes watching the lights of planes drift overhead. Men lined up with their kit, sprawled out on the sidewalk in rows, wearing too many clothes wearing all their clothes, trying to get some shut-eye before it all starts over, trying all they could. No sign of Billy anywhere. Only a prowl car slewed in to the corner of Fourth and Los Angeles, revolving lights like some carousel, and two cops running, yelling, Stop! Police! at this guy, who's already through third, and halfway down the block to St. Fabiana's. He pulls up, steps away from the dark, spreading his hands, taking the shape of a standing star. He might have been shouting, but he was too far off to make any sense. Then suddenly he reaches for his top pocket and seems to pull out a red handkerchief, steps backward, faltering, then rips another one 
right out of his face. It was only then that Walker heard them, the sound of the shots. After that, he kept going north past the beacon of hope, the floodlit stone towering above over all the human debris, poor as dust, all these winos, con men, crooks and cops, pimps and streetwalkers, the raised hand of the law, the whited sepulchre of City Hall. And on to Alameda, to Chinatown, till he found the path that climbed to the stone quarry hills, up through fields and houses of the new Pueblo to the high ravines. And he stood there far above City Hall over the lights of Los Angeles, as if the whole sky and all the stars had fallen, displayed, spread out below in a flickering maze, this bed of moving embers. It's a lovely um, <coughs> passage, um, but to, to make such beauty out of such a violent act is uh, an interesting trick you play. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can, can I ask you about another um, minor character who becomes more important later in the book, and this is Pike, the young newspaper man. What were you doing with Pike? Um, <clears throat> I, wanted, um, I wanted somebody, a, a sort of hate figure, that, that represented everything that, that was wrong with that world and is wrong with this world, um, as a vile, amoral, ambitious little shit. Um, I think I know him. <laughs> yeah, I think we all probably have met him. And he's everything that Walker despises. Uh, he pushes his way up the, up the ladder, standing on people's faces as he goes. And he's, he's a... He, I named him after... So I was thinking of Steer Pike. Oh, in, in Gormengast. In Gormengast. Um, uh, although he, that's not what I say in the book. I say he's named after. Um, they're all all the characters named after rye whiskies, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I was trying to find a Ted Hughes reference. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Somebody, some critic in the UK said, uh, why, "Why is he named him after a character in Dad's Army?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. good reader, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Pike brings in something that's that, that's sort of not been in the book to that point, I think, and and, mm. and something that hadn't been in your work before, which is that sort of irritated engagement with certain kinds of ambition, someone who hasn't really been there and done it, but is somehow reaping the rewards. And yes, yeah, well, that came, I'm afraid, from a bitter personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I so you better not ask any more questions, <laughs> because I, I can't reveal the name. Oh, well, ma maybe this is the point when I should ask you again about publishing. <laughs> and, and so working with Irvine Welsh, it must have been quite something being a young editor working on that book, which even at the time I could see was put together from very disparate pieces that had been produced over some years mm -hmm. and needed quite a lot of stitching. I mean, was that a great experience? It was all a oh, terrific experience working with Irvin early on, especially when it was um, where, when the writing was really strong and, and very colloquial and, and um, 
and even more energetic. Um, as you say, train spotting, I, I think he would say himself was made up of a number of stories that were uh, began to interlock in his head. The first stories I read were published in small magazines, and I took them to be stories. And I'd already taken on Duncan MacLean, a great friend of, of this country's, um, and Duncan's daughter, Cara, is here today. Um, and Dun I, Duncan had published some of Irvin's work in Clock Tower Press. And he, I'd read that, and I said, Duncan, can you ask this character if he's got anything in his drawer that could send me? And, and so that's what I got, transporting. Fantastic. And my, my bosses very grudgingly agreed to let me publish another uh, unsaleable uh, <laughs> book of Scottish filth. <laughs> it, it, it actually took a long time to take off that book, didn't it? No, it didn't actually. Um, the, it, it was the one and only experience I've had of powerful word of mouth. Mm. And it just went like wildfire through. There was no social media, thank God. But people were actually talking to each other like human beings, you know. And, and I remember reading the review in the London Review of Books. Yes. And going down to Whitcalls on a Sunday. And they had a copy which had obviously been there for some months because it was quite grey on the bottom edge. So, for, you know, definitely not a book that was hyped. That you, as now you see those books coming before they're even there. Mm -hmm. um, I remember once being in a conversation with some Scottish and Irish publishers who were lamenting the publication of writers like Irvine and um, Alan Warner in London. And they felt that this had been a great hurt to the Scottish and Irish um, writing communities, that they had not had the opportunity to grow their own publishing community with those successful writers. Do you think there's anything in that kind of oh, well, there was grievance? A lot, there was a lot of bitterness from the Scottish publishers. Yeah. Um, I mean, why? Because I'm... I'm Scottish too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I was just giving these writers a, a bigger platform. Um, they could be published in that rather parochial way that they were being published and reaching. Like Victoria University Press. <laughs> uh, not at all. No. <laughs> no, you're an international publisher. Thank you. Um, yes, I came in for a bit of flack there, but I've always been interested in uh, avoiding the um, kind of Oxbridge coterie that existed mm -hmm. when I joined mm -hmm. publishing, where everybody was writing novels about ladies in Hampstead having tea. And I wanted to something a little bit more challenging. I wanted different types of language. It was called the mar from the margins. You know, it's anything yeah. out, out beyond Watford. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so Scotland and Ireland particularly had amazing literary giants yeah. that were being ignored yeah. or just not being properly published. I thought, and they were all very different. It wasn't like the, they all came in the same bag. They were extraordinary. Was, was there a critical mass at which point Scottishness suddenly became a thing you could use to launch further writings? I think so. And then everybody jumped on the bandwagon. So a lot of rather indifferent Scottish writers were being published, published by other people. I'll have to get you to tell me how to do it. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that one of the advantages we have in New Zealand is distance. Yes. Um, we're not part of the same market, so while it's very hard for us to punt our books, 
northern hemisphere, mm -hmm. it does mean that we can actually grow our own here in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. And just speaking personally about being an editor, and you've been there for many years now, um, is, is it a different practice now that you're an experienced publisher working with young writers? Do, do you relate differently to them? I hope not. Um, I'm a, I've always uh, tried to um, stick to basically the same rules of, of engagement with writers. Um, if they want to make a mistake badly enough, they can make it, but I'm going to advise them, and they take my advice or not. Um, I think most writers are smart enough to know that the one thing they lack is objectivity mm -hmm. and distance from, from their work. And, and a, any outside reader, particularly somebody who's done it for ages, um, might be useful. So, um, I try and keep them away from the, the more uh, distasteful aspects of publishing, the commerce and the, and the marketing and the advertising and all that stuff. But, um, and just try and keep them as their head clean of, of all the stuff I have to put up with. <laughs> yes, do you, do you set them deadlines or do you stick to the view that the book is finished when it's finished? It's a lot of internalized debate in that. Kind of yeah, I, I, try, I give them loose deadlines because if they don't have a deadline, sometimes they won't ever write the book. Yeah. And I'll move it accordingly. Yeah. But um, I don't, they're not tied to anything. Um, and, unless they're, you know, they, they are very big. I mean, someone like Ondaatje, for instance, where he's being published and he has three editors, in fact. He's got a Canadian, uh, American and British editor. and. You have to tie the publications in because of the internet. All the books have to be published simultaneously, so it's, it's more complicated. It's hard. And, and not just the publishing, but before that in the workshop. I mean, the editing of those books is like three-dimensional chess because you have to satisfy the needs and the preoccupations and the existing knowledge of those different readerships. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most writers don't want any editors. Uh, Michael Andachi wants to have three. You know? <laughs> and so we're all sort of, you know, not quite arguing with each other, but it's, it is complicated. It is like... It so, sounds like his entertainment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where, where do you think the long take will take you as a writer? Um, Enormous the, success. <laughs> yeah. we, we wish you and, would. And money, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, as, as I say, it wasn't planned. The whole Booker thing didn't even cross my mind that it was even eligible. So I'll just go along with that for as long as I can and see what happens. But um, it took a lot out of me to write this book, um, four years of hard work. So I, I, I'm taking a little bit of a break at the moment um, and seeing your lovely country. Come well watching. Do you think we should ask for some questions from the okay. audience? Okay. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I think we're game. There, there is a microphone um, here. So would someone like to wave their hand and ask Robin something? There's yes. so many hands up there. Here, here's, here's someone. All right. The microphone's just, just coming to you. So yeah, if you wait for the mic, uh, then everyone will be able to hear you. Yeah. 
it's a marvellous read. Um, we, we also lose in Walker, you know, the artist that he is, um, because before, long before he gets the job as a newspaper writer, he's already writing, and he's so compelled to write. I got the sense he was compelled to write. And we see him as an artist. He could have been cameraman. He could have been, you know, he was a... The interior world is brilliant. You know, you see, he sees only the traffic lights are the sole colour in that grey. And these intense observations that he has, you, you manage to let us into the interior world so well. And I, I noticed that further through the novel, um, the flashbacks get closer and closer and he's drawn into that, that world of the past. He's becoming less well Mm -hmm. And he's uh, moving towards, you know, his end at the at the street, mm -hmm. the street there. And I just found it astonishingly beautiful and um, moving. And uh, I just wanted to thank you uh, rather than ask a well, question. Well, that's very generous. <laughs> Maybe we could have lunch or something. It's <laughs> one of the back, back row here. If all those questions could be a yeah. bit like that, I'd, yeah, sure. uh, we'll get the thank you. I'd appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm asking this question as, as someone whose brother-in-law is a uh, U.S. Navy vet. His job in Vietnam was body retrieval. And I was intrigued to know how you got into the character of Walker in the interview. No, I, I, I didn't. Again, that, that, that would have felt to me too much like research and it would have probably ended up being a different type of book. Um, I did, the only research on the war was, uh, I read a very good book on um, the history of an atrocity uh, in, uh, in Normandy um, committed by the uh, Hitler Jugend Panzer Division. They killed nearly 200 Canadian POWs, they um, rather very brutally, and and that was for, they were all well largely from the North Nova Scotia Highlanders, uh, which is the regiment that that I have Walker serving in. Um, so I I researched the war, but not the aftermath of what happened to those veterans. I I knew enough about the streets of Los Angeles and how this has been endemic. In, in America, all down the West Coast, because, because the weather is good enough to, to survive on those streets. Um, so I read a lot about, about that, and I, you know, too much research can, can, can be a dangerous thing. It can actually kill the circulation of a, of a book. So, I mean, the blood circulation. One on the front here, yeah. Thank you, Robin and Fergus. That was great. Um, I feel like the most appropriate fate for the long take would be for it to become a film. Anything, any chance of that happening? How would you feel if it did? That sort of thing, you know? Because it's saturated with film. Yes. Uh, and it's filmic. So, yeah. The problem is it would be very expensive because, uh, because of the location shooting that you need to do. And as I mentioned earlier, Bunker Hill doesn't exist anymore. And given that the 
bulk of the no of the, I'm going to say novel there. <laughs> um, We're coaching you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bulk of this narrative poem um, is is set in those streets that don't exist. That's a problem. But um, I wouldn't say no to a film. But uh, no, it is. I'm glad. You, thank you for, for that question. Is there another question? Here, here we are. I was just going to say, I think it's a film already. It just doesn't have the pictures. <laughs> uh, that's, well, but you could do it with the you, intimate scenes. You put that on the back of the, the reprint. <laughs> you, you, could, you could do it with the intimate scenes and then use montage for connections. So it would be a different kind of film. But The job's yours. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Hello. Hello. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of um, a film. I was going to ask you... Would, is it likely to be an audio book? It is. Because you've read it so well, I felt you should have been reading no, the narrative. No, because I can't, can't do uh, American accents. Oh, okay. It is going to be an audio book, and it will be available any time now, actually, because they were recording it uh, three weeks ago. And it's a, a, it's a Canadian guy who, who's lived in the States, who's reading the whole book. So he's he's got a great Canadian accent which he can retrieve, mm -hmm. and he's also has a, a, an American one. There are too many voices, too too much idi idiomatic uh, North American for me to do it. Um, but I'll be interested to see. One, one here that struck me is the typesetting of the book, and this might again be a publisher's nerdy question, but your poetry collections are some of the most beautiful objects because of the way the poems move in a very composed way down the page. And this book has a sort of an explosion of typographic styles. I think I counted six or seven mm -hmm. different formats to get the different levels of history. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm afraid I meddled. Uh, <laughs> uh, I could feel it. And <laughs> I, I sort of designed the book as well. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, but I wasn't going to let it out looking, looking shabby. It's, it had to be black and white. I, I love um, those authors who deliver camera-ready manuscripts. <laughs> Not. Yeah, all you have to add is the ISBN number. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, do, do we have? We've got one last question. Yeah. Could I just ask a question? Mm -hmm. Because, like, the book is to me, it's like a camera. You know, coming um, and please mob Robin at the signing table. He will be happy to personalise your books. Thank uh, you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.